Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said could be done and... Take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624, or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. A reminder, our questions bot is live. You can join the Geek Lab by going to geeklab.ninja. And send a message to questions, colon, linuxdelta.com. That questions bot will place that question right in front of our face. Joining me again, as always, Steve Ovens. Welcome, sir. Thanks again, Noah. So Vera Tunda asked um, on Wednesday, actually, of last week. We see that message, though, this week. We get into the studio. How did you manage to forget about Bitwarden in your list of must-have offline services? I host that myself so I can access it everywhere through my VPN, but I don't need the internet if I have it locally on my LAN as well. Additionally, I would add AirSonic to that list of offline for listening of podcasts. That's what I do all the time because it's shocking how many podcast services will truncate the back catalog, making it impossible to capture the full history of broadcasts. Something I'm becoming increasingly concerned about is the digital extinction of our culture through bit rot censorship and general neglect. So first of all, thank you for doing that. I'll be the first to tell you that there's a couple of podcasts that I subscribe to that I've had an issue with them uh, trimming the back catalog, as it were. And I've actually set up a my answer hasn't necessarily to been to, to self host so much as it has been just to run Podget on a digital ocean droplet and just have it download episodes constantly and just keep them there. And if I need them then I can get back. Another question comes in and says, I need some wire strippers. Uh, that can strip wires smaller than 32 aug. Any suggestions? My suggestion there would be they have wire strippers that instead of having the pre-cut little holes that you try to line up to the wires and strip, it essentially looks like two little grippy plier things. And when you squeeze the uh, wire strippers, what happens is the two little uh, clamps clamp down onto the wire, one on each side, and then they pull apart in opposite directions. And essentially what that does is it puts tension on the rubber of or the, of the insulation of the wire until the wa- insulation of the wire essentially rips in half right at the middle point. So I'll have a link to such a pair uh, in the show notes. But they're fantastic for stripping really small wires, what we use all the time. Again, phone lines are open if you'd like to join the program, 855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Com. Make your voice heard and become a part of the program. As always, we open with email. Your email goes to the front of the line. And so if you'd like to be included, uh, send an email there. Also, we organize our main section based on what we get in with feedback. And so if you'd like to be a part of that, we invite you to send an email live at asknoahshow.com. Our first email comes in from Charlie. Charlie writes in and says, good day. I came across this distro. And then he has a link. Accessible Coconut. It's a Linux distribution for the visually impaired people. Now, I have to give a shout out to Charlie for pointing this out because we have frequently 
gotten emails in from people that have said, hey, do you have anything for people that have impairment? Do you have uh, do you have tools for people that are impaired? We talk fairly regularly about ocular and, and the kind of tools that will help people that are impaired. We, so far as I know, have not covered any specific distributions. And so I was I was delighted to be able to take a look at Accessible Coconut. It looks based on uh, I've not tried it myself, but it, it, but just kind of looking through it looks like a distribution with the Mate desktop and a number of tools that have built, been built in a screen reader, a quick button to turn on or off the screen reader as you need an on screen keyboard also comes with a magnifying app and then a Sharita Braille writer to write Braille. Now, I have to be honest and Steve, maybe you can help me out here. How do you do Braille on a on a desktop and how do you do that on a computer? There are some screens that are actually able to do Braille. So you have you'd have to have one of those things, but I imagine if you are visually impaired, you would have you would have a screen that that it basically is like a USB add-on or you can get them like that and it just kind of sits on your desk and it it is it gets programmed from the program on your computer and you're able to figure out what's happening. So it somehow somehow mechanically raises little dots? Yeah, essentially. No kidding. Okay. So today I learned. Um well, I'm going to son of a gun. Today I learned. Yeah, here we go. Orbit 20 re- Okay. All right. So this is something I wasn't aware of that now I know exists. So I guess we'll have links to refreshable braille displays um that you could use with accessible coconut if you were interested in that um but there there's a couple things there so first of all huge thanks to charlie for sending this in but also if you're one of the people that are out there that are struggling with a disability and you say to yourself i'd like to use a free and open source operating system but i need a certain set of tools it's nice to know there is a distribution out there that contains a set of those tools. Now, it's also going to come with a full application stack. So you're going to get LibreOffice and Firefox and a doc and a text editor and GIMP and Shotwell and all of the programs that you would likely need to use a desktop environment. But it's going to all come as as a, as a bundled set and then include those accessibility tools right off the top. Um, Steve, any thoughts on Accessible Coconut? I kind of took a look at it. Um, I honestly shied away from trying it because it's on SourceForge, and I just have that um, mm. I have that knee-jerk reaction to things that are hosted on SourceForge these days. Um, so I would hope that they they might do something like host the ISO on, on GitHub or something like that where there's a little more trust these days. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a great recommendation. Hopefully, the, if it takes off, I'm sure they'll probably go that route. But it's interesting that stuff like this comes in because, again, we've covered accessibility a, a number of times in the few years that I, I've been doing Ask Noah alone. And I don't ever remember covering a distro specifically based around it. So this is fantastic. Thanks for writing in, Charlie. Our second email uh, comes in from Anonymous. He writes in and says, hello, Noah, I've noticed that you've been all in on Matrix and I've been considering doing so. However, I found this concerning article and I'd love your thoughts on the privacy implications of Matrix giving these findings. And so he links to Hacka.org. And essentially, really, uh, this article references a number of other articles. I would say the most substance, substance of which is a uh, is an article on from uh, from GitHub that that basically talks about the notes on privacy and data collection 
of matrix.org. And so I it, it it's a bit of a it's a bit of a long read if you dig all the way through, but essentially so far as I understand it the concerns are the following. Uh, for the first three years of Matrix development, from 2014 to 2017, most of the core contributors worked for a company called Amdocs, and they were paid directly to work full-time on Matrix. And then in July of 2017, Amdocs considered the project to be sufficiently successfully funded, and so they said, hey, you can now self-support and you can now self-fund yourself, so we're not, no longer going to do that. The majority of the core team uh, went to work for New Vector, which was the company found founded around Element, which was separate, I might add, from Matrix.org, which was the organization founded to govern the specification of Matrix. And so that is New Vector uh, and its employees now deal with all of the development who have since found donors who donate millions of dollars to, to keep the development going. Uh, the second concern is... Founded off of the fact that Riot, which is now the Element app, is a Matrix client that's created with Electron. And the argument there is that Electron is not considered free and open source by the Free Software Foundation. The third uh, strike against it is Bridges. And they're saying that, hey, if you tie all of these other services to Matrix, have you not created a central hub for all of these services, particularly if that central hub is matrix.org, then all of that information is going to pass through matrix.org. And so you're not really creating a decentralized chat environment if you're, if you're going that route. And then, of course, matrix.org being that central point and then vector.im, which is typically used as an identity server, uh, is receiving a lot of that private information and certainly a lot of that metadata, a lot of which can be personally identifiable um, especially if you know what you're looking for. And so they can be used to get, gain access to an IP address, which could then lead to a physical location. So, um, I, I again, it, it's, a, it's a bit of a long read, and I'm not a security expert, so I want to be upfront and honest about that. But he, here would be the way that I would answer those questions or those concerns. So as far as Matrix being developed by, by Amdocs um, originally or being funded by it, what I would tell you is that they went through the matrix team went through reasonable amount of trouble to separate out the core specification from the actual development of the software. Keep in mind, nothing requires you to use synapse. Nothing requires you to use element, the server and client respectively. You can take the matrix spec and write your own server. And indeed people have. Um, and so if you have concerns about, um, Amdoc, you could certainly just look at it and say, well, I really like the idea of a decentralized, encrypted, uh, federated communication system. So I'm going to take those ideas. I'm going to take the spec and I'm just going to go implement it um, over here, totally away from all of these organizations. I think that works. The second thing is Riot being written in Electron. I think this is where we start to enter into the space where we have to balance a little bit security and convenience. So if you're the Matrix people, and you're setting out and you say to yourself, we want to develop a system for doing this. Uh, and so we lay out how we're going to write this software. Matthew has said on this program, you know, we didn't really intend it to take off the way that it did. We, we started, we wrote the thing and all of a sudden there's all these places and all these organizations that want to use it. And we're like, okay, I guess we're in on Synapse and Element, right? It was just meant to prove 
the specification that the idea, the concept would work. And then they're going to go back and they're, they're continuing actually to rewrite things in Dendrite. Um, and so there's a number of different third party clients that have come up that are native clients that are not written in Electron and run perfectly fine on top of even things like Sailfish OS has their own matrix client. And so I think that if there's a concern about Electron, that's fine and well. I would just suggest that you don't use a client written in Electron. But if you're the development team and you're saying we need to get one consistent client that's going to work on all platforms, well, I'd be hard pressed to tell you a better way to do that than to write that client in Electron because now you're targeting the web, Mac OS, Windows, Linux, and it's all one code base and it's just simply wrapped in an Electron wrapper. I've been pretty in on Electron from day one because I think it's good for the Linux desktop. And so it would be inconsistent for me to, 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 to differ here. Um, but again, I, I, there's, there's other third party clients. If you don't like it, by all means, as far as it relates to the bridges, I have not heard this from anyone at matrix.org. So this is Noah speaking, but my understanding is that the bridges aren't necessarily designed to be the central, the, the, the central thing. If you, want to have end-to-end -end encrypted communication, you want privacy, you should be running your own home server. We'll get to that in a second, but certainly you should not be going through bridges. One, there's very few of the bridges that support end-to-end -end encryption, mostly because the other side doesn't support it. Additionally, there's going to be data leaks on the other side. So I can, I can bridge to Facebook Messenger, and that's going to get me there as far as getting messages to and fro. But the Facebook site is going to be compromised because it's run by Facebook. Uh, and so if you didn't want to do that, if you didn't want that sort of central hub, you probably wouldn't be using bridges anyway. And then I'll then I'll kind of shift on from that to say that if those bridges are running on a central server like Matrix.org, you've given up a certain amount of your privacy and, frankly, a substantial portion of your security because you have to trust the people that run the home server. So in the case of Matrix.org, do we think the people that wrote a decentralized secure messaging server are compromising the server that they give away for free? Probably not. But if that was a concern, A, you could go audit the code, and then B, you go run your own home server. And the people at Matrix have been very clear from the beginning. They don't want to run some massive home server. The end goal of Matrix is to someday have the Matrix server embedded into the client and have a monolithic uh, server client base that has account portability so that you install the app off of the Play Store, or iOS Store, or F-Droid, or on your Linux computer, and that contains all the code that you need to run a tiny little home server as well as a client and then send federated messages to anyone else. So there's you're not having to trust anyone or anything. The problem is until we get account portability so that you can move from you can move your account from one home server to the other, that's not possible. And so until they can get Dendrite finished so that they can have a server that can be bundled with a client, that's not possible. So what we're left with is the a, a very promising future, but a not perfect one as it is. Now, if you run your own home server and you tweak it specifically for privacy and security, then I think you can get there. And the, the article does mention that one of the concerns is with some of the default values that are set. And again, I go back to that balance of security and convenience. If you're a, if you're coming from a Microsoft Teams or a Slack or a Discord or a Telegram, there's a certain expectation that you can find other users in the network. And telling people that for security reasons, we don't expose the matrix IDs and can't allow them to be searchable, like that's great if that's what you're after. 
But the vast majority of people just want to be able to find their friends. And so having the option to say, hey, I want to lock this down or I don't want that feature, that's fine. Most people are going to go out there and expect to be able to have some sort of identity discovery. And that's where Vector.im comes in uh, with the identity server. And I think they're pretty upfront when you go to enable and say, hey, I want to publish myself in the identity server. And it says this is going to make you discoverable by other uh, by other users in the matrix community. And they're going to be able to find you. And to do this, we share this information with Vector.im. If you want to set up your own identity server, you can do that. But if you do this, here are the implications. And I think that's an okay trade um, to make. Now, Steve, I'm somewhat interested to get your take on this precisely because I am an unashamed Matrix fanboy and you are not. So so give me the level-headed other side approach to this. Um, what should our concerns be? Or basically, really, maybe we don't have concerns, but what should the what kind of questions should we be asking uh, to hold the Matrix uh the developers and the matrix community accountable and responsible for delivering on privacy and the things that they promised would come out of the software package. So I think that this is a, an interesting question. Um, I read through a bunch of the links that, that we're referencing here and were referenced in the article and I found them to be um, well linked. So I want to say I didn't check the references of the links. I, I simply read the material. So that's my disclaimer, but um I think that Noah gives a lot of these things a pass because Noah likes the software and um, I, I am decidedly not for it. Like as, as a non-Matrix user, and it's not that I'm a hater or a detractor or anything like that. I've installed my own Matrix server and stuff like that um, and played around with it. I look at this and I go, okay, if I was evaluating anything other than Matrix, would this be acceptable? And the answer is no, it's not acceptable because, uh, yes, there's a balance between, uh, let's say, convenience, like we talked about. But the whole pitch of Matrix is you run it yourself, it's secure, it's private, blah, 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 blah. Oh, but by the way, you actually, like, the defaults are not private. Like, that's not okay. If if you're pitching this as this is a replacement for, I don't know, Telegram or, you know, pick some service, fine, you know. You can have wide open defaults, but you're not like this is the framing is is bad here. The the idea that, oh, it, it's competing with all these other things that are trying to find their friends like maybe. But this is like you're not going to get adoption from these people. It's got rough edges. Even as a technical user, I found this this experience to be subpar um, and and a highly experienced troubleshooter. And I, I found the experience to be subpar, not that I couldn't get it working or whatever, but all that to say, if, if you're going to speak about, oh, well, the average user expects blah, then this thing needs to get a lot better than where it's at. And right now it's target market is me, is Noah, is this niche where we understand these points of view and therefore it should be private by default and those, those options to turn them on or off should be there, but you should opt into having things like, so just, just a quick glance over things that the, the gets reported back on even ho self-hosted clients are things like your matrix ID, the email address, phone number, uh, you know, anything that's associated with, with the matrix IDs, your, the usage pattern, which by the way, I'm not necessarily not in favor of, but that should be an opt-in, right? 
you want you want that information, you should opt in. But the IPs of of given users, you know, the users' devices and system information, other servers that you're talking to, all of these sorts of things, I, I understand the technical reasons, and that's what has to happen in a federated system. But you you've told me that I'm installing this thing that's that's privacy protecting and and honestly part of this is my own lens like if i'm installing something at home on my lan i automatically think that i'm i'm stepping up into the privacy unless i'm intentionally installing something like i don't i don't even have an example but intentionally installing something that i know is leaky so i think that um this was the wrong approach they they've they're trying to target the niche users, but then also saying, well, we're making this compromise to make it uh, accessible to the average person. But who is the average person? Like, if I'm if I set up this this server and I put my mom and dad on it, I'm the one going over to their phone or whatever and logging them in or whatever. They have no knowledge of any of the backend. So the average user is not installing this, is not using this. So uh, it seems to be a mismatch of of who they're targeting. So I would push back a little bit that their target audience is the is the is the security privacy minded. I think that the matrix spec is built to accommodate those people. But I would submit to you that their primary target audience is business users. And if you look at where they're spending their development dollars and where they're getting their development funding is. They're primarily it's primarily large government organizations, universities, um, hospitals that need on premise hosting and need the ability to send encrypted communication. Um, I so I so so anyway, so if you I think when you start to look from that perspective, then I, I think that, you know, in those instances, they're either paying EMS to set all of that up, in which case they're tweaking all of those things. When you're looking at self-hosting, I think the primary target audience is people that just want to talk with their friends and play with the technology. And I I guess that's – and maybe I am. Maybe I'm making excuses here. But it seems to me that's where it's okay to step back a little bit and say, okay, I want some of these things to be discoverable. Um, I'm going to turn on our interactive matrix room. Are you guys there? I know uh, a lot of you guys use uh, Matrix or host home servers uh, yourselves. Do any of you guys have concerns with the privacy? And as we're going through some of these things that that um, that are talked about about Matrix, does any of it concern you guys? Does anybody say, "Hey, you know, I I wasn't aware of that, and that kind of changes my perception"? I mean, I knew all of all this uh, going into it. the the bigger The bigger issue I have with uh, with Matrix and Element and all this stuff is that the actual workflow for getting started is absolutely horrific. Even for someone who is technically inclined like myself, it's a, a real pain to onboard more devices and more connections. I live in a multi-device world like most people, and having multiple devices is difficult. Um, beyond that, um, I think the defaults now are reasonable for creating rooms and Establish communications. Like if you create a a group chat and you don't set an address when you're creating the group chat, like a a public reachable alias address, it's encrypted by default. If you do a direct message, it's encrypted by default. Uh, all these things. However, they flip that switch I think prematurely because the entire workflow 
around ensuring that you have access to encrypted messages is absolutely terrible. And mm. I don't think they are putting enough effort towards fixing that. Yeah, I've I've run into that myself. If you you'll you'll get a message and it'll say you know the sender's key has not come through that those kinds of things. I you know and here's the other thing too, and I'd be interested in your anybody else's in the in the community's thoughts on this. I recently ran into an issue where I can no longer uh, get notifications from mentions on encrypted messages on mobile. I can only do that on the desktop, and that changed. It didn't used to be that way. And I'm not sure if the, I hope that's just them working through that and that feature isn't gone forever. Yeah, I, they've been doing a lot of work with that recently. Uh, the whole push notifications, especially on all the mobile stuff. And that's been something that I haven't really seen come up. I've been having a slightly different issue where I get two notifications every time I get a mention. So I have yeah. the opposite experience. I, I think For it's me, still very unstable right now in general. They just yeah. released a new push provider and changed everything over to it. I think it's called um, Swignal? S-Y-N-G-L-E, I think. Yeah, I was going to say, they just switched over They they just switched over their um, push, fra- push notification framework. Uh, and things are a little goofy um, with that. But at least for me... Uh, my notifications have have always been a little bit haphazard, but that's also because I changed my client a while ago to only def- only actually notify me when I'm at tagged. And so um, what actually happened for me was when they switched the providers, that setting got dropped and I started getting notified again of everything. Yeah, that, which... that's, what, that's what went away is I wasn't able to choose anything other than uh then all messages or none i couldn't do the tags which is what i kind of missed so i'd be interested to seeing this discussion unfold further you know it's interesting in the chat room the linux ninja says um that they are all of these options are opt-in and he says he's never seen anything that his that his synapse server isn't private so it'd be interesting to a look to see if if all of this information is still current if they've made changes but again i am very much interested in holding people accountable if if we buy into a software and we subscribe to a particular ideology of hey we believe that this is secure and private then it needs to be or we need to understand how to make it secure and private and so um i the the my, my, the only thing i counterbalance that with again not to beat a dead horse but the only thing to, to, to i counterbalance that with is if you want to get people onboarded onto a new system, it has to be approachable. And I think to make something truly secure and private, it comes with a certain amount of uh, nuisance in managing that because there is a certain element of security and privacy that comes with it. So I, so, but anyway, I, it's, it's an interesting discussion. I'd be interested in your feedback. Email us live at asknoahshow.com. Let us know why we're wrong, why we're right. And, um, and what you think of Matrix. I'd be interested to hear. The phone lines are open, 855-450. No, it's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. James from Grand Forks, you're on Ask Noah. Good afternoon. Hey, Noah, it's good to talk to you again. And uh, Steve, it is a pleasure and an honor to speak with you for the first time this evening. Uh, say I live in an older house, and it has the old school copper telephone lines running all over the place. Uh, we don't have a landline phone here anymore. And I was wondering if you guys, either of you, had any projects or, or ideas of how to use those lines. 
Steve, do you have any thoughts? Those lines can only carry small amount of voltages, and so I guess it would depend on what you what you were doing with them. Um, you could power some small devices on four, uh, five volts, so like the ESP devices will run on five volts, and you can safely carry five volts over a phone line. But I wouldn't go much, I wouldn't go much more than that. And uh, phone lines, in terms of if you tried to make them Ethernet or whatever, will be horrendously slow. So it's. Uh, yeah, there's not much use for phone lines anymore. I'll tell you what I've used them for, and this is you're you're either going to laugh or go, oh, that's brilliant. Um, we will tie uh, Cat five or Cat six to phone lines and use it as pull cord to pull Cat six yeah. to the intended location. Um, yep. And I actually, my house was built in the '60s, and that's exactly what I did. I went and said, I want uh, I want two drops of Cat six to every wall. Oh, look, there's phone wire that's running to all these. All of these, you know, at these places in the wall, and I was able to pull the Cat Six right into the box, um, and just using it as pull cord. Now that'll depend on who installed your phone lines. If they stapled it down, uh, you might not have that option. But really, the two things I could think of to do with it, other than use it for pull cord, would just be using it as like a closed contact pair to signal things, um, which wouldn't be horribly useful. But uh, there's not much you can do with phone lines. I think uh, I think your phone's breaking up there a little bit, James. We'll give him a second to uh, to get that straightened out. But yeah, the 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 it's it's interesting. You know, you there there was a time where they ran phone and and coax cable to all of all the places in the house, and now we've started to move away from all that. And pretty much anything you could have done with those two standards, you can now do with cat six. The only thing I've circled back to coax for, I've actually started using RG six again when we do structured wiring, because you can pull quad shielded RG six into this coax cable that you typically use for cable TV. Yeah. Uh, we've started to pull that back to all the locations with displays. The reason being you can use it as a long HDMI cord. Essentially what you do is you put BNC connectors on each one and effectively what you have is an SDI cable. Um, and SDI being the professional version of HDMI, then you can use uh, like the like the decimators, little red boxes that convert HDMI to SDI and convert back and you're able to send a high definition video signal over a professional uh, wire. And then you've just got those BNC connectors. You can use it as a, as a big long SDI cable and you don't run into the distance limitation like you would with HDMI. So kind of gone back on RG6. I have to tell you, I've not pulled phone cable since then, though. James, do we have you back? All right. I think James's call might have dropped, but you can give me a call back. We'd love to uh, we'd love to discuss with you further if we, we didn't answer your questions. Again, phones are open, 855-450-NO. It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Make your voice heard, become a part of the program. Our third email comes in from Gary. Gary says... Hi, Noah. Telegram recently stopped supporting their Wear OS Android app. I've been looking for an alternative. My use case, my 11-year-old, has type 1 diabetes. She's kept her Android phone in her bag and gets notifications and the message on her watch, Wear OS 2.0, to take her medicine. At school, and she could glance at her watch and simply reply from the watch. And then with Telegram, we always knew when it was delivered and read. We're currently doing it via SMS, but SMS is not reliable. We don't know when she has read it, and when she goes to the next school building, they block the cell phone signal and give her Wi-Fi 
because of the medical exemption. Just a short pause there. That's illegal. They can't do that. You cannot block a cell phone signal. That's inter- that's uh, willful interference and violates FCC policy. I have been searching for an alternative with no success. I don't want to use WhatsApp or Google's offerings as they are out for various reasons. I looked to see if Matrix has a watch app, but couldn't find one. I'm fine running something that I have to host myself, but my choice of smartwatches is limited because she also needs to run the Dexcom watch app, which runs on Wear OS 2 and Apple. The choice is slim because FDA approvals, which is slow. I thought of Apple, but not sure I can mix Android phone running Dexcom CGM app with the phone app with an Apple watch. Sorry for the convoluted message. Any thoughts would be welcome. Gary. Um, so I'll throw this to you, Steve. Do you have any thoughts right off the bat? You know, as I was reading this, I was kind of racking my brain. This is a an area where I'm not very uh, well-versed in terms of the medical side of things. When, when you're talking about being able to um, use your watch and stuff like that, except that the, the Apple Watches can take a, a SIM card. So my wife's watch can take a SIM card, for example, which means that you don't have to pair it with the um, with an Android phone if the app that you need runs on the watch. Mm. So the messaging app and the health app, if they both run on the watch or if you can get the health data somehow from... Because I know that app, Apple's health... Um, app is actually fairly extensive if you get the more expensive watches. So I guess it depends on what information is being relayed uh, there. Aside from that, I couldn't really come up with anything. Uh, the messaging messaging is is difficult at the at the best of times. The only other thing I could think of was Signal because Signal gives you read receipt. It has a desktop client. You can also set it as a, your default SMS client so that it will work on both SMS and um, over data, which means you should still get the read receipt if you're doing a signal-to-signal communication. I'm going to let Sleuth jump in here from the interactive Matrix Room. Thoughts? Yeah, so Matrix should work just fine. It has both typing and read receipts. The only thing that I would be slightly concerned about um, given the fact that you're on a controlled school network would be if you set up your own home server, double checking with the IT department that your that your host name isn't blocked. I've had that a couple of times with controlled networks with some of my users. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, the question would be, does that run on Wear OS? Because that was the root of, of his problem. Like he was using Telegram, but they stopped supporting Wear OS. And so if he went to the Apple uh, platform, he could pick up Telegram again. I know that my wife uses that firsthand. But his so my question to you guys is, does Wear OS support Matrix? Wear OS runs on the watch, correct? Yes. So then you just need notifications. Potentially. And Wear OS, just, Wear OS is also Android-based, so uh, you could... I don't know if, uh, if uh, the Element folks have decided to make a Wear OS UI. I would be surprised if they did um, this early. But it's not out of the realm of reason that it couldn't be that an Android, uh, the Andro- a Wear OS app could be made. Um, I I just don't think there are enough Wear OS users to make that matter right now. 
So, but so, what? So, just to kind of break this down a little bit. So, the the question is: so she has Wear OS, she's wearing that on her wrist, and she needs to be able to get these notifications, and she needs to be able to reply. So, I guess the question is: if Wear OS doesn't ha- doesn't have a a specific matrix client does running the client on the phone. Would that allow her to get what she needs? She can see the notification. She can reply. Yeah. As long as the app uh, uses the standard Android notification API to indicate that you can reply in line, which I believe the um, element, element app does. does use that. It does not, however, have market as red. Sadly, maybe right. that'll be added later. Yeah, but because it can do the reply part through the, because it already does it in the Android Notification Center, that Notification Center API also is how Wear OS works. So you will just be able to read messages and reply to them, but they won't get marked as red because that part isn't implemented. So Atypical Kernel posted an app for a Wear OS uh, app called Messages for Wear OS, and it claims to be able to tie into SMS, Hangouts, WhatsApp, Facebook, Slack, Viber, Telegram, um, a number of different messaging apps. So if you're looking for a specific app that you could run on the watch, um, this looks like it would fit the bill to talk to a number of different clients. That doesn't include Matrix, much to my uh, much to my chagrin. But all a number of other messaging platforms are on here and and natively supported. Yeah, I haven't personally used this app before. It's just it it works on Wear OS and Telegram, and so maybe this would solve this problem. Outstanding. Well, give those a shot, Gary. Let us know if that gets you closer to your goal or if we entirely miss the mark, and uh, we'll go from there. Our fourth email comes in from Baku. Baku writes in and says, Hello, Noah and Steve and the rest of the community. There's been an ongoing discussion the past couple of episodes on securely erasing an SSD. And as always, Noah was right when he said that there is no sure-shot way of securely erasing an SSD and encrypting it with Lux was the best thing that you can do. You can even make it a bit more secure by detaching the header. Rather than copying and pasting, I'd point to the original article. It's a small read, and all the commands are neatly listed here. And he puts the link. It wouldn't be a, and it wouldn't be a great idea if Steve and you document the entire local home automation process somewhere. Speaking of support in terms of GNU's Linux world, Slackware has an amazingly never stated officially though long support cycle. For example, Slackware 14.0 released on 2012 is still supported to this day with no EOL announced. Slackware 13 was supported for almost nine years. On average, you are guaranteed to receive security patches and updates for at least seven years. Not bad at all, considering that this is completely free and there's no corporate entity backing it like Red Hat Canonical or SUSE. P.S. From Bangalore to all the way across the world, somewhere in the Dakotas must have been quite a journey and adventure for senior Chalaya. Ultimately, climate, unfamiliar terrain and foreign culture, starting everything from scratch. Not easy by any means. Salutes to him. Hey, I'll pass it on, Baku, and thanks for writing in. We appreciate it. Um, Steve, thoughts on uh, on either securely erasing a, an SSD or documenting the whole local home automation process? I think we kind of uh, solved the secure erase, or what I would do, which would be to destroy the drive. Um, mm. As for as for documenting the the process, I was thinking about this. Um, I. I probably will get around to doing something, although I'm not really sure 
what I'm I'm prone to doing diagrams as a, as a function of my day job, and so maybe I'll put some diagrams together. I'm not really sure what kind of documentation um, th uh, the writer actually had in mind. So maybe you can write back in and give me an idea of what you're looking for, um, and I can see about doing it. Our fifth fifth email comes in from James. James writes in and says, "We have." a newly rented two-story community hacker space with various light switches and power switches in a confusing layout. We'd like to automate power through Home Assistant. The intention is to improve accessibility and help our volunteers maintain space when opening or closing down. Would it be safe to VPS Home Assistant with Ansible, Wi-Fi, VLANs, Zigbee, Z-Wave? Any suggestions are appreciated. Thanks, James. So, uh, Steve, I'll start with you. What are your thoughts? I have plenty. Uh, so I would say Wi-Fi is going to be the cheapest and the um, the easiest onboard because almost everybody has some sort of access point. It's familiar with that. Uh, for where it falls down can be signal de degradation and reliability. So in this case, I might be inclined to go with Z-Wave or Z-Wave. Um, depends how you say that, due to the fact that it runs on the 900 megahertz spectrum. I know it's a closed protocol and that goes against the ethos of the show, but uh, Zigbee runs on the 2.4 spectrum and that gets interfered with by cordless phones and Wi-Fi and other types of devices, not to mention the fact that while Zigbee is an open protocol, you can have and often do have times where you'll buy something Zigbee and they won't be able to talk to each other. So the, the 30 second view that I'm stealing from somebody else on the internet was that Zigbee is like the little box when you go to a drive-in and it allows you to talk to somebody else, but you could be speaking, one person could be speaking Spanish and one person speaking English. Yes, they can use the little box to talk to each other, but they don't understand what the other side is saying. Whereas in Z-Wave, it enforces you use this protocol, you'll speak this way, and everything Z-Wave will talk to each other. Um, so in that regard, I like that. VLANs for sure, um, because I don't like to have anything I consider IoT traffic on a regular network. And uh, I'm not really sure what what the VPS with Home Assistant and Ansible comment is. I'd, I'd be interested to know a little bit more about that, but I'd still... Like for what it sounds like you're doing, you could probably easily buy a four gigabit Raspberry Pi and be able to coordinate your um, your automation of the warehouse with kind of little difficulty. If you want to write back in, James, uh, I will absolutely uh, sit down and chat with you about this, and and maybe we'll come up with something for the show about this because there's this is a huge topic that um, I've been exploring for a few years now. So I'm going to piggyback off of what Steve said about Z-Wave. I um, there's there, so b just to give a little background. I have traditionally used Lutron switches, and I have found them to be second to none as far as quality and their ability to do what they say they're going to do and function and all those things. To the point that my wife has no concept of what switches are speaking remotely to the controller, and then that's executing a command, turning a different light switch on, and which ones are actually controlling a load. They are that, uh, they're that smooth. Um, the problem is they're almost $250 a dimmer, and so that doesn't meet everyone's budget. 
I have recently, a friend of mine turned me on to these switches made by a company called Innovoli. And there, I'm looking at their Red Series dimmer switches. They're Z-Wave. And the thing that I really like about them is, so they have a little controller on board. And it allows you to program that controller. So, for example, you can do uh, you can have it do different things depending on if you do a single tap, a double tap, a triple tap, a quadruple tap, a quintuple tap, a push and hold. And that will allow you to activate different scenes. Additionally, they have an LED color bar that runs along the side. And the thing that is nice about that LED color bar is you can program it to do different things. So you can program it to flash, blink, pulse, uh, whatever. And so you can tie that to, so for example, in our house, tied to matrix messages. So if I see something comes in on our, our company alerts channel, that is like the, hey, there's something massively burning down and, and somebody needs help. It flashes all those LED bars on the right-hand side red. And I know, hey, there's an alert and I have to go get to work. Um, it, additionally, you can tie them to different states in the home. So you could say, for example, somebody left the garage door open or the security system is armed. Um, so you can have them turn green when the system is disarmed. You can have them turn red when the system is armed. You could have it show a different color depending on what the weather is doing outside. Um, and then last but not least, uh, they allow you to install them without a neutral wire. And if you look, a lot of the uh, smart controlled switches require the neutral wire to complete the circuit. Uh, these do not. And so I'm a big fan of them. And I think they're like 50 bucks a piece, 60 bucks a piece. So they're 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 pretty substantially cheaper than the Lutron ones. Uh, again, they run on, on the Z-Wave. So not all the things Steve said about not hitting all of the open marks that we could potentially hit. But if you want a reliable switch, that's going to do a really good job. And in this case, look absolutely stunning and have a ton of features behind them. I think the Anovoli are, are definitely worth uh, checking out. I think I'll piggyback on that one and say, um, if we're looking for specific recommendations, I'm, I've been deploying uh, a GE dimmer well not a dimmer a ge it has a built-in motion sensor as well as like the smart switch aspect and what i like about that is they're reported independently to home assistant so um, that allows you to do all kinds of things and the reason why i bring this up is because uh, i have done a lot with motion sensors and these guys are 100 percent solid in my testing i haven't gotten false positives i have you know they they catch me every time they're just uh they're really good and they run about the same about $42, $40, on, on Amazon uh, for those guys. So big plug there. We'll have links for you for all of these products in the show notes. You can find those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Our pick of the week this week is brought to you by Sleuth in the chat room. It is photoprism.app. You can learn more at photoprism.app. App. So everybody likes taking photos. Everybody has photos they want to store. Google has discontinued their store everything forever unlimited. So now you're looking to self-host and now you're thinking to yourself, I have privacy concerns. I want to store my images, but I want to store them securely and privately. What do I do? Well, PhotoPrism is an answer for you. PhotoPrism addresses your privacy concerns and allows you to archive your photos for the next generation. Now, they developed this easy-to-use application that you can host on your own server, you can host on a VPS. Essentially, it's a web app, but it's a web app written 
in Go. And so that means that it's going to be incredibly performance, not going to lag. It's not going uh, to cause problems. PhotoPrism is a privately hosted app for browsing, organizing, and sharing your photo collection. It makes use of the latest technologies to tag and find pictures automatically without getting in your way. So you can say goodbye to uploading your visual memories to the cloud. Now, one of the great things is it supports WebDAV, which means you can browse uh, your local, you can browse them as a local file system so you can go through and organize photos, those kinds of things. Additionally, it stores the originals by date. So if you ever want to pull yourself back off of the, off of this system, you can do that and you'll just have a neatly organized photo collection. Um, I hadn't had a chance to dig into this part of it, but I I believe the way that they're doing this is there's a third party app that can go on your phone and that will sync your photos uh, up to Photo Prism. And the third party app, I believe, is called PhotoSync. You can learn more at PhotoSync-app.com. This is linked from the Photo Prism site. Now, Sleuth in the chat room says that the phone syncing options uh, they have, they do have open source ones at the bottom of the page. So you can definitely check that out as well. Well, but again, the app is called PhotoPrism. You can learn more at PhotoPrism.app. Our gadget of the week this week is the quiet electric trolling motor. So you've probably, if you're on the lake, and I spend a ton of time on the lake, granted, I'm water skiing, so I'm going 60 miles an hour. I'm not so much worried about a trolling motor uh, unless we're fishing. But oftentimes, you want to go through your favorite fishing spot or you want to maneuver around to your favorite sp- fishing spot or stay in the right place. You don't want to have to sit there and wield the, the, the trolling motor the whole time. Who has time for that? I like act like an animal, right? So what you do is you go over to Vancor, that's V-A-N-C-H-O-R dot org. They have an open source trolling motor packed with features. Now, Vancor is an open source trolling meter motor, excuse me, for smaller boats. It's created with the goal in mind of being cheap, easily modifiable, and fits your needs. So the total cost of this project, including the cheap trolling motor, is about $300. It has a tiny little web UI that you can load. You can load it on your phone built into the device itself. And you can give it a set of GPS coordinates. You can give it a track that you want it to follow. Uh, and then the trolling motor just follows it. Again, entirely open source from the hardware down to the software. And for under $300, you can learn more at Vancor. That's V-A-N-C-H-O-R dot org. A question from our questions bot. Again, you can message at questions, colon, linuxdelta.com. I'm getting into VLANs in my home network. I'm looking at some TP-Link managed switches. What are your thoughts on TP-Link switches? Or do you have a different company that you'd recommend? I only need about eight ports per switch. Steve, thoughts? Yeah, it's a tough one. Um, I haven't used the TP-Link ones. To be honest with you, I've been using the Unify. I know I should be hiding under a, a covers <laughs> when I say that around our, our group here. But uh, Unify has been the, the people that I have gone with outside of, you know, I've used Dell's kind of professionally and the HP's, which are really nice, but uh, don't have any of those at home. So we at work, we primarily standardize on HP, and um, I, I would tell you that – well, I'll start here. If you, need, if you need the actual performance that is advertised by the white paper, then you're real, really your only choice is Cisco. Um, but past that, all other brands are kind of – they all perform pretty well. Um, I've yet to find an enterprise network that has, that has a need for features that HP doesn't accommodate, so I'll, I'll, I'll put that out there. Um, but then when it comes into inexpensive switches, and we run into this quite a bit with nonprofits, we run into this quite a bit with churches, and we run into this quite a bit with uh, power home users, which increasingly more and more we're getting called to, 
to do, do service calls there. TP-Link is a great option. Uh, I find them to be some of the best budget switches out there. I will tell you that in my house, I have three TP-Link switches. Um, I have one for my dedicated, um, I guess, offline network things not connected to the Internet. I've got another one for my security network. Uh, and they work fantastic. They have a really decent implementation of VLANs, so they don't try to obfuscate it so much to the point that you can't get things uh, to work or you can't figure out the terminology. They essentially just kind of adopt the way that Cisco and HP and all the big players have done it. I've never run into any issues uh, with with the switches not being able to handle the network load. Um, so they seem to work just fine. And I also have seen them. There's a um, organization in town that, that uses them quite a bit for their VoIP technology, uh, which anybody that's worked in networks knows that that can be kind of demanding. Uh, and so, and then they work fantastically. So if you're looking for an inexpensive switch, I would highly recommend taking a look at the, uh, at the TP link switches. In the news this week, Fedora 35 beta is all about polish. So they are extending the existing features and adding features to support the next level of experience for Fedora Linux. So whether you use Fedora on the desktop or as a cloud-based image or Linux container image, you're going to find that the improvements that Fedora 35 have made makes for a pleasant upgrade. Now, with the Fedora 35 release, they're improving some third-party application support and making it easier to install a selection of third-party software via FlatHub. And uh, so that means when you go to do things like Zoom or Minecraft or Bitwarden or other popular applications, instead of having to figure out, well, how is this packaged? Where does this come from? What source? All the things. You simply go into GNOME software, and it's going to bring those things to you via FlatHub. Now, one of the most exciting things that's coming is the new multitasking panel. Now, this comes as part of GNOME 41. Uh, it has the ability to disable hot corners, disable the active screen edges, a dynamic or fixed number of workspaces, the workspace behavior and multi-monitor, and app switching preferences. They also, and we talked about this a little bit in the past, they have a new cellular panel that's been introduced in GNOME 41, and this is going to enable you to do things like if you have an LTE modem that is connected. A lot of laptops are shipping with them, but even if you have a USB one, you'll be able to control that. GNOME 40 also introduces power profiles into the settings app, and so GNOME 41 devs have made it possible to switch those power profiles by showing them in the status menu by default. Ubuntu 21.10 beta is out, so you've got a choice right now what you want to test and which direction you want to go. This is going to include GNOME 40 and not 41. Uh, so as you'll remember, 40 is the GNOME team set out and said, how do we make the ideal desktop environment for our users? Took a bunch of feedback. GNOME 40 is what you got back. One of the big things they changed is the horizontal workflow. And so um, you're going to get that with Ubuntu 21.10. The activities overview is now both a window picker and a workspace switcher. And so you can get to the screen by clicking on the activities label in the top bar and switch and then switch by single tapping the super key. Additionally, the Ubuntu dock is still present the left hand side of the screen at all times and now has two new items, a trash can and a separator. 
And finally, in the news, Spaces is out of beta from Matrix. You can learn more at element.io slash blog. So Spaces is the ability to organize your Matrix rooms, either publicly or privately, allowing communities to join a given space and automatically be added into a number of rooms. As Additionally, you'll be able to manage permission for those rooms. Well, we've played with that for a couple of months. It's now exiting beta and is uh, is published as part of full release. And so if you download the latest version of Element, either for iOS, Android, or your desktop environment, you'll have the ability to organize your rooms as spaces. They've done a lot of polishing on subspaces, that is to nest one space inside of the other. They've done a bunch of polishing on the landing information, which is something that we actually struggled with at Southeast Linux Fest, so that's exciting. And finally, space discovery, the ability to discover faces, spaces, excuse me, and then join them. Uh, things that they're going to be working on is bringing it up to feature parity on iOS. Right now, you're not able to do all of the things on spaces on iOS that you're able to do on the alternative operating system. So they're hoping to get that up to snuff. And with that, the music in my ears means we're out of time. You can follow us on Twitter. Steve is at Linux Ovens. I'm at Kernel Linux. The show is at Ask Noah Show. We record every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central at AskNoahShow.com. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>